Good morning, Pleasant Union. Today, we're very blessed to have the physical ability to gather here in the Lord's house to praise and worship Him today. And this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Now, we ought to rejoice and be glad in every day uh, that the Lord has given us, but sometimes we don't always do what we ought to do in that situation. Sometimes our days are filled with scary circumstances that we have to face. Now, I'm sure many of you have seen the Facebook video that Ms. Gardner uh, graciously posted onto Facebook and that Mr. Nelson generously shared uh, for all to see of me on the three-person swing uh, at Snowbird a few weeks ago. Now, this Goliath of a swing had three people seated uh, across this bar that we could hold on to, and um, it didn't look that intimidating uh, from the ground level. But as soon as you can begin to hear the motor pulling your swing up to the top, um, some people close their eyes. I'm not going to say if I did or didn't. But then you get up there, and if you open your eyes, they were closed, um, then you can begin to see a very different view that you've seen from the ground level. Could you please show the video? Uh, We have live footage here today of this swing. It just builds up the anticipation for how scary it was. Now, if you want to see how I felt, you could close your eyes and wait uh, for, for the video to come up. Well, basically, what, what, ends, up, what ends up happening, which is luckily for me, we can't even show uh, the video because um, it would have been embarrassing, but it would have been uh, worth it. But anyway... Luckily for me, the video's point of view is, is from a little distance off, so um, can't really, you can hear a scream, well, a, a slight scream, not much of a scream, but you can't really tell who it's coming from with how far it was. Now, some people would say that it was Joseph screaming, uh, almost everybody would say that it was me, but I will continually proclaim that it was Rachel screaming, and that's the story that we're going to go with today. We all may have very different personal accounts of this story, but the truth is that the world may never know who was really screaming in that video. I mean, that's going to be a mystery that we'll never, never find out. Each and every one of us have different situations that we're afraid of. But no matter the situation, we're called to live fearlessly. Now, living fearlessly means that you do not let fear consume you. It's okay to be scared from time to time, but you don't want to let that fear consume you and overtake what God has called you to do. American icon John Wayne states that courage is being scared to death but saddling up anyway. An example that I can give you is that I am absolutely terrified of snakes. As some of you probably know, that is the fear that I inherited from my dad. But I need to do a better job of not letting that fear consume me. I need to do a better job of recognizing that I am a child of God and have been been given dominion over my fears. My relationship with God gives me comfort in the midst of fears. Now, 2 Timothy 1.7 says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. It is not God's plan for us to have a spirit of fear, but to have a calm spirit 
resting assured in the Father's hands. In men's discipleship class today, we were talking about how we haven't been given a spirit of fear for the sole purpose that we have been adopted into God's family. There are many fearless characters throughout the Bible that we can look to for inspiration, just as I was fearlessly conquering that three-man swing at um, Snowbird. But the one I want to focus on today is Elijah. So if you could, please turn to 1 Kings uh, chapter 18, verse 20. That's where we're going to be starting today. But before we begin to look at Elijah's fearlessness, we need to set the stage for his prophetic time. After King David died, his son Solomon became the king of Israel. So God responded to Solomon's prayers by providing him with wisdom. But Solomon began to worship other gods and disobey the Lord's commandments. So God's response to Solomon's disobedience can be seen in 1 Kings 11, uh, verse 11, where it states, Then the Lord said to Solomon, Since you have done this and did not keep my covenant and my statutes, which I commanded you, I will tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. So God did not immediately take Israel away from Solomon, but rather took Israel away from Solomon's heir. Israel proceeds to split into two kingdoms, ten of the northern tribes uh, taking on the name of Israel, while the two southern tribes take the name Judah. And in these dark times came false idols and the prophet Elijah. So we're going to start reading about Elijah's victory over false prophets in 1 Kings 18.20. But earlier in the same chapter, we get a lot of background information, mainly that the Lord came to Elijah and told him to present himself to Ahab, promising to send rain. This rain is significant because Samaria is currently enduring a famine. And we also see Elijah as a bold figure as his presence, his sheer presence, causes Obadiah to fall on his face before Elijah. Elijah proceeds to demand that Ahab gather 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah to Mount Carmel. So, Carmel. Right now, we're going to start in uh, verse 20, and we're going to be looking at living fearlessly. This is the, the first point of the lesson today, living fearlessly. So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him not a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left, a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. So Ahab sends for all the children of Israel and gathers all of the false prophets at Mount Carmel. Elijah begins to debate with these false prophets by proposing a question. Elijah's statement calls into judgment the divinity of Baal as a false idol. Elijah even goes forth to state that he alone, he stands alone as the last prophet of the Lord. While there are currently 450 men that prophesy of Baal. There happen to be other prophets of the Hebrew God alive at this time, but Elijah is actually proclaiming that he alone is willing to stand up to the 450 prophets of Baal. Elijah is often described as Israel's greatest and most dramatic prophet, and we can see that in his willingness to stand alone against 450 other men. Next, we're going to see Elijah's wager take place. Therefore, let them give us two bulls, and let them choose one bull for themselves. Cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood. But put no fire under it, and I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood. But put 
no fire under it. Then you call on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. So all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. So Elijah proposes a challenge to see which God is truly divine. Elijah states that whichever God answers the cries of the prophet or prophets will be the true God. So next we're going to see Baal's prophets offering that they make towards Baal. In verse 25 reads, Now Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one bull for yourselves and prepare it first, for you are many, and call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. So they took the bull, which was given them, and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning even till noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice. No one answered. Then they leapt about the altar which they had made. So Elijah begins this debate by allowing the prophets of Baal to go first. If we like to think of this in a modern day sense, if they were to be playing football and Elijah had won the coin toss, Elijah is deciding to kick the ball off, deferring and letting Baal's prophets start with the ball. He's allowing them to set up their offense first, while Elijah is on defense. So uh, the prophets of Baal field the ball. Uh, they begin to, to set up their offense and choose their plays uh, that they're going to take to get down the field. But unfortunately for them, they were not able to pick up the yards necessary to get another first down. And the scripture tells us that they call upon the name of Baal from morning until noon. They spent hours calling upon the name of Baal, but Baal never answers them. Their cries go unheard. Here we see that there's no response from Baal. And so it was at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is meditating, or he is busy, or he is on a journey, or perhaps... He is sleeping and must be awakened. So they cried aloud and cut themselves, as was their custom, with knives and lances until the blood gushed out of them. And when midday was passed, they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Elijah's confidence begins to show in this verse. You see, Elijah isn't scared at all. Elijah is living fearlessly. As Elijah begins to mock the prophets of Baal, Elijah's comments are not only mocking these prophets of Baal, but he is also mocking Baal. He is, he is mocking Baal's lack of power, but not just his lack of power, but his lack of response. Baal's lack of care for these prophets that live for him. Elijah mocks Baal as a false god by stating that Baal is not omnipotent, not omnipresent, and not omniscient when he states that Baal is either meditating, Baal is either busy, Baal is either on a journey, or that Baal is either asleep. Those are, those are four things, meditating, busy, on a journey, or asleep, that our God is never doing. Our God is always accessible to us. The prophets of Baal continue to cry louder and even cut themselves to bleed over the altar that they have made for Baal. These false prophets prophesied all day, yet there is still no response from Baal. The, the statement that I like the most is where it says, no one paid attention. It's not that, that no one responded to attention. It's that there was no one for that attention to go to. For Baal wasn't even there. They were casting these cares upon someone that wasn't even existent. 
So next we're going to begin to see Elijah's offering to the real God here in verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. Then with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two saves of seeds. And he put the wood in order, cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood and said, Fill four water, pot, water pots with water. So that's a lot of water right there. If you've ever had to put water, uh, in, um, put water into jugs and carry it, you know that water uh, can get heavy. And that four water pot, pots of water would actually be a lot of water. So he fills up four water pots of water. Um, then he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time, and he said, do it a third time, and they did it a third time. So the water ran all around the altar, and he also filled the trench with water. So there's a lot of water in this trench right now. There's a lot of water there. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, that I have done all these things at your word. Elijah is acting in accordance to God's word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know, that these people may know that you are the Lord and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. Now that's a pretty mighty fire to lick up all that water and everything that Elijah had built. Elijah prepares his altar as an offering to God in a precise manner. Elijah cares about the way that he is calling uh, upon God. Elijah prays to God and asks him to reveal himself so that all may know him, turning their heads, their hearts back to God. Elijah's prayer has two elements. First, he wished that the Lord would demonstrate clearly to the people that he alone is the living God. Second, he prayed for full revival of God's people. As the fire of the Lord fell down and consumed the burnt sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and even licked up the water in the trench, Baal was proven to be useless because Baal could not respond at all. As the fire of the Lord destroyed everything on sight. Now here is my favorite part of the story. When I was a kid more, I loved this part. So Elijah executes Baal's prophets. It's really exciting. Um, Verse 39 says, Now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the uh, brook Kishon and executed them there. Now the prophets of Baal turned away from Baal and acknowledged who the real God is. Elijah seizes the false prophets and proceeds to execute them. The prophets were executed because of their blatant sin and the ruin that they had brought upon the nation. So Elijah has acted in accordance to God's will, what God had told him to do when, when God had came to Elijah. Elijah rebukes these false prophets, even goes forth to execute them for the toil that they had brought upon the, the nation of Israel. And then 
God delivers on his promise stated earlier. So God does not only answer Elijah when Elijah calls upon him, but God also keeps the promise that he had set forth previously by allowing the drought in Samaria to end. Verse 41 says, Then Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of abundance of rain. They can already hear the rain coming. I imagine that it was even more rain than we experienced last week. There was an abundance of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Carmel. Then he bowed down on the ground and put his face between his knees and said to the servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. So he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And seven times he said, Go again. Then it came to pass the seventh time that he said, There is a cloud as small as a man's hand rising out of the sea. This isn't a big, a big cloud we're seeing here. So he said, go up and say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Now it happened in the meantime that the sky became black with clouds and wind, and there was a heavy rain. So we have a cloud the size of a hand that all of a sudden the whole sky is black, and rain is coming down everywhere. So Ahab rode away and went to Jezreel. Then the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah And he girded up his loins and ran ahead to Ahab in the entrance of Jezreel. So Elijah goes to the top of Mount Carmel, prays before God, and God responds by sending rain that ends the drought in Samaria. Two times now, Elijah has prayed to God, and God has answered his prayers immediately. Has anyone in here ever prayed to God and wished that he would have answered their prayers immediately? I know know that I can raise my hand for that. I know that sometimes I'm not as patient as I need to be uh, when it comes to God's timing. Selfishly, we can have a tendency to read this passage and ask and to ponder why our prayers are not answered immediately the way that God answers Elijah's prayers immediately. But we can see that Elijah's prayers are in accordance to God's will. Elijah lives, lives faithfully in God's will. Elijah lives fearfully in God's will, and Elijah lives willfully in God's will. So far, we have seen Elijah be bold. We have seen Elijah be courageous. We have seen him be brave, someone who heeds God's commands, praying to God and strong. Elijah just executed 450 men and then immediately humbled himself before God in prayer. However, What happens next is going to show us a different side of Elijah. So that first section we were looking through was called living fearlessly. And this next section is going to be called living fearfully. It starts in chapter 19. It says, And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. So Ahab informs Jezebel that Elijah has executed uh, all of these prophets with the sword. And Jezebel responds by sending a messenger to Elijah, promising that she is going to find him and kill him. So we've seen Elijah so far. His character has already been built up in uh, the scripture that we have already been read, we can, we can kind of predict how he might react to this. 
but then we're surprised with what he actually does as it seems out of character. Now verses 3 through 4 read, And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belonged to Judah, and left his servants there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat under a broom tree, and he prayed that he might die and said, It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father. So when Elijah learns of Jezebel's threat to him, he does not act in accordance to the character that we have seen previously. Instead of acting like the mighty man of God that we have seen in action with the sword in his hands, he cowardly backs down because of fear. Just to recap, Elijah challenged 450 men and their God. This isn't just one uh, Goliath three-person swing at a summer camp with safety regulations. This is 450 men and their God. And then he proceeds to run away when Jezebel threatens him. Now, I don't fully understand uh, what it's like to be absolutely terrified of a woman. But hopefully, (laughs) if the Lord blesses me with marriage that day, then maybe I can understand Elijah's mindset better. But Elijah is just absolutely terrified of Jezebel. When looking at Elijah's fearlessness compared to his fears, the math doesn't add up. When you, even when you look at the sheer numbers of 450 compared to one, Jezebel must have been one scary lady. Hmm. Remember what we stated earlier. It is okay to be scared from time to time, but it is not okay to let that fear consume you, especially when it affects your adherence to God's will in your life. Elijah allows the fear that Jezebel instills in him to consume him. Elijah even goes as far as traveling into the wilderness a day's journey to sit down under a broom tree and beg for God to take his life away from him. This verse shows us three things. Elijah doesn't just run away into the wilderness. He travels a whole day's journey to get away from Jezebel. Now, I have gone on to vacations with my parents. We went on one for one of their anniversaries, and we went to the mountains. And we went hiking in the mountains, and I can't remember how old I was, but it was a lot of walking. I remember that. And it felt like we spent the whole day there, but really we didn't. Imagine going into the wilderness a whole day's worth, because that's how scared you are. Second, Elijah places himself under a broom tree. The broom tree has sufficient foliage for shade and often grows to the height of 10 feet. So these trees grew in an abundance of Israel and would have provided Elijah with cover to hide from Jezebel. Lastly, Elijah prays to God asking to die. Elijah proclaims that he has had enough. Elijah lost confidence in himself by stating that he is no better than his fathers. But then, when Elijah begins to live Fearfully, God reminds Elijah of who he is and that he's in God's presence. When looking at our first point of living fearlessly, we can see that that took place from chapter 18, verse 20 to chapter 18, verse 46. That's about 26 verses that Elijah lives fearlessly. And then we're going to see four verses where Elijah lives fearfully. 
It is only a short period of time that Elijah lives fearfully, for God comes and reminds him who he is. First, we're going to see that God provides in uh, verse 5 of chapter 19. Then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength that, of that food forty days and forty nights, as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. One thing I see out of this is because he had to go one day's wilderness into the journey, God makes him travel forty days and forty nights wilderness. So that's a lot of walking that he uh, put upon himself by walking in, into the wilderness uh, that day. Elijah was down and out, and only because Elijah had already counted himself out. God had never given Elijah a reason to believe that he was out of the game. Elijah pulled himself out of the game. Elijah put himself on the bench. Elijah's fear is consuming him, but God sent an angel to tell Elijah to arise and eat. God provided a meal for Elijah to be filled and strengthened. Notice what happens after Elijah eats. And what the Lord provided for him. After Elijah eats his meal from the Lord, he turns back and goes to sleep. He goes right back to sleep. Now, I have a question for the parents in the congregation. So, parents, say if you uh, feel like you have prepared a good and filling meal for your children. And from what I understand, uh, even from looking at myself, is that children eat a lot. And therefore, it takes a lot of food to fill them up. So you prepare this meal for your children, and upon completing this meal, they go back to sleep. They go back to their room, shut the door. Can I get any amens from parents about that? Does that ever happen? No thanks. I I know that sometimes I've been guilty of that as well, so I'm preaching to myself uh, in that sense. But uh, no acknowledgement of how good the food was. Uh, no thanks uh, for the meal. Um, no thanks that it was only like halfway burnt this time, you know, in the meal. But um, <laughs> how would you feel as a parent uh, in, in that sense? You might come after your child. Well, I'll tell you what um, what Miss Michelle Daniel would do. She would come after a child with a belt. Speaking from firsthand experience. <laughs> um, the angel of the Lord returns to Elijah a second time. So he comes back and tells him to arise and eat for his next journey will be a great one. Elijah arose, ate, and drank, and then traveled 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, which is a reference to Mount Sinai itself as the mountain of God. So in verse 9, we're going to see an important piece of dialogue, an important piece of dialogue that we're going to be reading today. And there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? So God plainly and simply asked Elijah what he's doing. How many times have we been in the position that Elijah was in, where God has to ask us what we're doing? We see our fears as something real and something terrifying, We see our fears as an obstacle that we have to learn how to overcome. 
We see our fears as a powerful source that can consume us and cause us to change our plans in an attempt to evade these fears. But whenever we fear, God looks at us and says, What are you doing here, Patrick? God sees no reason for us to be scared. When we are fearless, when we are fearless, God is fearless. When we are fearful, God remains fearless. Next, we're going to see Elijah uh, begin to give a sob story to him. So he said, I have been very zealous for the, for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Elijah makes the same statement here that he made earlier. The only difference is that his statement here has a different mindset behind it. Elijah states that he alone is left as a true prophet under God. Earlier, when Elijah faced 450 prophets of Baal, he gladly boasted that he alone was left as a true prophet under God. Now, he states somberly that he alone is left as a true prophet under God. Elijah has allowed fear to consume him and taken him out of the game completely. But next we're going to see something beautiful. We're going to see that God doesn't only ask Elijah why he is here, but God is going to reveal himself to Elijah. Verses 11 through 13 read, Then he said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, and behold the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not the wind. And after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle, went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Suddenly, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? God sent a strong wind, but that wasn't God. God sent an earthquake, but still that was not God. God sent a fire, but that was not God. And God sends a still, small voice, and Elijah recognizes it as God. And this still, small voice utters the same question asked earlier by God. What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, I can remember being dropped off at preschool a little over a decade ago, uh, as a, a while ago, and being scared at first. You know, you would get there, and you would, you would play with toys that had TV on with Scooby-Doo or Power Rangers or something, and you'd play with your toys, play with some friends, and um, you were good to go. But then, after a little while from that distraction, you would realize that your mom wasn't there. And then it was a whole other story. There was a whole, whole other fear associated with there once mom wasn't there. But then as you continue to go each day and progress and get accustomed to learning that your mom does have to go to work to buy you the toys you ask for, um, or to say no to the toys you ask for. But, <laughs> but um, once I realized that my mom wasn't going to be there, it was a whole different story. You see, I mentioned that to say that we often just want to know that someone is there. Children like to know that their parents are there. And when they feel alone, they get scared. Even when we get older, it doesn't only pertain to children. 
We all want to feel like we belong to someone in some capacity. Everybody wants to be special to someone else. When we feel like we're alone, that's when we become more insecure, and that's when we allow our fears to consume us. When God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? It's not only a question, but it's also a statement. He is also saying, listen, I am here, Elijah. Because if you can hear God's voice, then you know that he's there. God sent wind to show Elijah that he is powerful and in control. God sent an earthquake to show Elijah that he is powerful and in control. God sent a fire to show that he is powerful and in control. But lastly, God sent a still, small voice to show that he is loving and in control. Elijah did not just need to know that God had the power to save him from any circumstance that he feared. Elijah needed to know that God had the love to save him from any circumstance that he feared. God's power was not, would not save Elijah without the motivation of God's love. God's love is powerful, and, brought, and being brought into God's love is the good news of the gospel. In 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die, former pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis states, Justification is not good news if it only makes us legally acceptable to God, but doesn't bring fellowship with God. Redemption is not good news if it only liberates us from bondage, but doesn't bring us to God. Adoption is not good news if it only puts us in the Father's family, but not in his arms. Today, the good news of the gospel is that God doesn't just want us in his family, but God wants us in his arms. This love that God pursues us with is the greatest motivator, ensuring that his power will save us from ourselves. Now, insert your name for Elijah's. God's power would not save Patrick without the motivation of God's love. God's power allows us to be justified by faith as Jesus died on the cross to satisfy the atonement for our sins. But it is God's love that motivates his actions to save us. God has the power to save everyone on this planet, but it is God's love for us that provides us the option to accept the free gift of salvation that has already been paid for on the cross. Today, God is not only asking, what are you doing here, Patrick? He is stating, listen, I am here, Patrick. Why are you here today? Do you feel alone? Are you questioning where God is in your life? Are you living a life consumed by fear only because you're forgetting that God is right there? You can come to the altar today and listen to God.